0: Hey folks, welcome to Footnotes. I'm your host, Jamar Tisby, bringing news and views to help you become a more informed citizen, activist, and believer. Coming up in this episode of Footnotes, I go a bit heavy on the sports ball, as our producer Bo calls anything involving sports, but I promise it will be mixed with a heaping dose of justice. I talk about the brilliant expose about Liberty University President Jerry Falwell Jr., and I wonder why white evangelicals haven't waged a concerted effort to mount a primary challenger to Donald Trump. But up first, a few announcements. A couple of weeks ago, The Witness hosted our first ever podcast-a-thon. What is a -a podcast-a-thon? It was three hours of live podcasting that we put on Facebook Live, and it was part of a fundraiser for our first national conference, the Joy and Justice Conference. Now, for those who couldn't join us live, you are welcome we put those recordings on up on our podcast feed so you can listen to me and Tyler do two episodes of Pass the Mic. You can listen to a crossover episode with Allie Henney and Aaron James called Combing the Theology, which is a mashup of uh, the titles of their individual podcasts. And most importantly, we talk about how you can support the Joy and Justice Conference. Uh, I'm going to just Make a direct ask. We would love for you to make a financial contribution so that we can make this conference happen to the best degree possible. The easiest way to do that is online. Go to joyandjustice.com and there is a link on the menu bar that says Donate. Just click that link. You can donate via PayPal, via Stripe, uh, most electronic forms of donation. You can also write us a check. There's an address there at the Donate link where you can write the check. And we would love for your financial contribution, especially if you can't make it to the conference. This is one way that you can support it. If you can come to the conference, then go ahead and make a donation anyway. You can do both things. So go to joyandjustice.com. We would love your financial contribution and your prayers, of course, for this conference coming up October 4th and 5th in Chicago at the historic Ebenezer Missionary Baptist Church. Now, on to what is typically my favorite part of the podcast, the reviews. We did it, folks. We passed the 200 reviews mark. We have exactly 204 reviews as I'm recording this, and that's up from 189 last week. But I threw in a bit of an incentive. I'll talk about that in a moment. For this week's featured review, it comes from Roxanne Ingstrom, And she writes, I am so thankful for Jamar Tisby's continued work in dissecting and evaluating current events in light of history. His wisdom is much needed. And as a white woman, I am very grateful for not only his work in racial justice, but the way he humbly and boldly shares insights to help all of us reshape America and ourselves. I've been personally challenged, called out, informed, and encouraged to participate in activism. We need this. Thank you. Thank you, Roxanne. And I just have to give a a bit of a shout out to Roxanne because I had the opportunity to meet her in person this past January at the book release party for The Color of Compromise. Roxanne is a phenomenal photographer. If you go to my website, jamartisby.com, the header image at the top of that page is a picture that she took. Uh, It was freezing cold. It was just before the polar vortex in Chicago, but we braved the weather and she took some great pictures. Not only that, she did a photo shoot for me for free just to support the book launch and my ministry, and she gave me a ride through Chicago's gridlock traffic to get to the venue where we did the book launch, and she took pictures while we were there too. So if you're looking for a great photographer in the Chicago area, contact Roxanne. Her website is hawaimages.com, images.com. And as I mentioned a moment ago, I I gave a little bit of an incentive for folks to leave a review uh, in these past couple of weeks since our last episode. Uh, Last episode, I announced our first ever book giveaway on footnotes. It wasn't just one, but three books, Divided by Faith, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria, and my book, The Color of Compromise, All you had to do was rate and review the podcast and share a link to the podcast on social media and then email me the proof that you were entered. So I called this book giveaway the Racial Justice Starter Kit. These are books that have been foundational to my understanding of racial justice. Uh, Folks emailed, I entered the names into one of those online random name choosers and the winner of the Racial Justice Book Starter Kit giveaway is Daniel Cleven. Congrats and thanks for your support. Sorry if I butchered your last name. But look for an email from me, Daniel. Send me your address and we'll get you those books right away. Congratulations. And don't worry, folks, I will definitely be doing more book giveaways as time goes on. So stay tuned. But don't wait for the giveaway. Go ahead, subscribe, rate, and review today. On to the news. Black athletes should go strictly to HBCUs. Author Jamel Hill of The Atlantic poses a potentially disruptive question. She asked in an article, what if a group of elite athletes collectively made the choice to attend HBCUs? HBCU, of course, means historically black colleges and universities. Hill goes on to write, Black athletes overall never had as much power and influence as they do now. While NCAA rules prevent them from making money off their own labor at the college level, they are essential to the massive amount of revenue generated by college football and basketball. This gives them leverage. If only they could be moved to use it. In the article, Hill, who famously departed ESPN Sports over her outspoken criticism of President Trump, described the positive impact... HBCUs have had in the history of the black experience in the United States. She says, despite constituting only 3% of four-year colleges in the country, HBCUs have produced 80% of the black judges, 50% of the black lawyers, 50% of the black doctors, 40% of the black engineers, 40% of the black members of Congress, and 13% of the black CEOs in America today. The only black female candidate, she goes on to note, Kamala Harris, is also a product of an HBCU. In spite of the enormous impact of HBCUs, though, they can't compete on a financial level with Division I sports schools. She cites some statistics about those schools. 30 Division I schools bring in over $100 million each on sports. For example, the University of Alabama brought in $174 million through athletics in the 2016-2017 school year. At the same time, Prairie View A&M and HBCU brought in under $18 million. Outside of sports, the average HBCU endowment is just one-eighth that of the average predominantly white school. Hill's Point is that black athletes constitute the majority of major money-making sports teams at the collegiate level, sports such as football and basketball. What if these black athletes took their star power and the money they attract through their athletic brilliance and brought them to historically black colleges? In Hill's own words, if promising black student-athletes chose to attend HBCUs in greater numbers, they would, at minimum, bring some welcome attention and money to beleaguered black colleges, which invested in black people when there was no athletic profit to reap. More revolutionarily, perhaps, she goes on to say, they could disrupt the reign of an amateur sports system that uses the labor of black folks to make white folks rich. In other words, where the athletes go, the money will follow. What Hill is calling for may sound radical to some, in fact, and predictably, she received harsh criticism over her article, a couple of tweets, one said Jamel Hill coming out as pro-segregation is probably the least surprising thing I've seen this week. Another said, nothing to see here, just Jamel Hill advocating for segregation, this is literally racist. Okay, so a lot to say here. First, While some may think Hill's appeal is radical, it actually has a long history in the black organizing tradition. We can think of the Buy Black and Support Black Businesses campaigns that encouraged consumers, especially black consumers, to spend their money at black businesses in order to support black business owners and invest wealth back into the community. Also, During the Depression era in the 1930s and continuing into the civil rights era of the 1950s and 60s, activists led campaigns against segregation with slogans such as, don't buy where you can't work. So this idea of black people taking their investments to black institutions, in this case HBCUs, it has a long history. And second, are people really so blind that they can't see how calling for black athletes to go to HBCUs is not racist. Do these folks realize why there are HBCUs in the first HBCUs in the first place? Both public and private colleges and universities barred black people from attending for decades. Many HBCUs started during the reconstruction era after the Civil War because even after emancipation, white institutions didn't want black people there. So black people, we had to push for our own institutions because racism locked us out of established ones. Racism and segregation are why we need HBCUs in the first place. Beyond that, HBCUs have been chronically underfunded and under-resourced. So far, very little has changed. What Jamel Hill is talking about is using the enormous value add of black athletes in terms of revenue and public exposure and investing that In the colleges and universities that have produced the most academic and career success for black students. Now that's only controversial if you can't see or you refuse to see how much black athletes give to predominantly white institutions and the comparatively little they receive. And don't get me wrong, as it stands, playing sports at a D1 school can set you up for pro sports. It can connect you to social and professional networks. Uh, getting, degree, getting a degree from an elite institution can, can improve your job prospects. But at what cost? Number one, the HBCUs suffer because they don't get that, get that attention nor that revenue from athletics. But also, according to Hill, black males make up just 2.4% of the total undergraduate population of the 65 schools in the so-called Power Five athletic conferences. So the most elite, high-powered, perennially ranked and contender schools, black males make up just 2.4% of undergrads. So that means if you're black on these campuses, you face racism and discrimination in both overt and covert forms. Um, you may not have professors or classmates who look like you. You're valued if you're an athlete mainly for your athletic skills and not your intellectual ability or your cultural heritage. And it makes these large schools that already have a lot of money compared to HBCUs makes them even richer. So I think it'd be really hard to pull off for black athletes to, in significant numbers, commit to HBCUs instead of uh, D1 schools or Power 5 schools. Um, Number one, you're going to have probably some diminished professional opportunities, at least initially. It's going to be harder, perhaps, to break in uh, to the pro levels if you haven't played at a, a school with other elite athletes. Also, it takes time for the revenue to come in and to make a lasting impact so um while the press coverage would probably be immediate if you get uh, a very highly ranked and recruited athlete committing to an HBCU over some of these uh perennially ranked programs to get a lot of press attention uh but the revenue uh that would actually have a lasting impact that would kind of take some years to build up momentum i would expect so there would be a, have to be a very courageous generation or two or more of athletes who would take the L on money and fame and prestige, but they get the W on justice and solidarity. I think it's worth doing more than thinking about. Let's do one more on a sports story. This one is about my alma mater, Notre Dame Go Irish. You may or may not know that the University of Notre Dame, the Fighting Irish, has a leprechaun as its mascot. Fun backstory, Notre Dame is French for Our Lady, meaning uh Mary the mother of Jesus who's highly honored in the Catholic tradition. So how did this Catholic school with a French name get an Irish leprechaun for its mascot? Well, according to Notre Dame's website, during the 1910s and 20s, stereotypes and ethnic slurs were openly expressed against immigrants, Catholics, and the Irish. The press often referred to Notre Dame teams as the Catholics, or worse, the Papists or Dirty Irish because the school was largely populated by ethnic Catholic immigrants, many of them Irish. So there was a big population of Irish Catholics at Notre Dame. But in a classic example of turning a negative into a positive, over time Notre Dame students and officials adopted the name of the Fighting Irish to embody their underdog status and indomitable scrappy spirit. They adopted the Leprechaun, which used to be a caricature drawn by people in England to make fun of Irish people, and they are to this day the Fighting Irish. Since its official adoption as the mascot in 1965, the Notre Dame leprechaun mascot has always been a white guy. In some very special years, this white male student also had red hair in almost an exact approximation of leprechaun lore. The first non-white leprechaun, African-American, was selected in 1999. His name was Mike Brown, and this is dating myself a bit, but I was an undergrad at Notre Dame at that time, and we knew each other. Now, in 2019, we have another black leprechaun, the first since Mike Brown ended his tenure in 2001. His name is Samuel J. Jackson, not to get confused with the actor. Not only that, we have our first female leprechaun mascot, Lynette Wookie and she's black too. There's a third mascot this year. His name is Connell Fagan, who is literally Irish. He's from Northern Ireland. So this is great news, right? Our most diverse cast of leprechaun mascots. But of course, they had to insert a racism. The founder of Barstool Sports, Dave Portnoy, tweeted, you know what is sad? Internet outrage has made me afraid to say that I think the Notre Dame mascot should always be a midget-looking ginger. So, I'm just going to say it and tweet. He said it. Uh, but he should have listened to his own advice. He was right. The outrage came swift and fierce so far that tweet has been retweeted over 1000 times and has more than 400 comments. Um a lot of them are in agreement with him, but also, there's some disagreement. Um, One of them in terms of agreement said, I'm glad someone else said it because everyone watching with me was like, why is the ND mascot not three feet tall and a redhead? Well, I was watching the game too. I saw the mascot and uh yeah, I wasn't wondering about that. I was celebrating the fact that we have a leprechaun mascot who's black. So... I think it's hard for people who are almost always in the majority to understand the importance of representation to people who are in the minority. When I was at Notre Dame, black people made up 3.3% of undergrads. And to this day, that number remains below 4%. I had just one black college professor. She was a visiting professor uh, so she didn't stay there long. I was there when Notre Dame hired its first and only head football coach, Ty Willingham, and his impact on the black players and the black students across campus can't be quantified as we finally saw ourselves represented in the most prominent athletic administrative position in the school. A school mascot. It's about more than sports. The mascot fundamentally represents the institution as an ambassador So what does it say when that ambassador can only be a white person? Here's the thing. The leprechaun is a fictional character. Why can't he or she be represented by a person of any race or any ethnicity or a man or a woman? Now this issue is slightly complicated because a leprechaun is tied to a specific nationality and ethnicity. Ireland and the Irish... At the same time, the physical appearance of, of the leprechaun in terms of skin color isn't that important. The mascot still wears green, still hypes up the crowd, still does all the most important things a mascot does. Skin color affects the job not at all, except to expand the number of people who see themselves represented in the university. This is not a politically correct culture or internet outrage culture at work. It's finding that in a competitive process of tryouts and tests, more people than just white males can earn a job. Many of us have nostalgic attachments to sports teams and their symbols. But when that attachment gets in the way of equal opportunity and the chance for the inclusion of historically marginalized groups, it's time to let go of that attachment. Jerry Falwell Jr., the dictator of liberty. University, that is. Brandon Ambrosino, a journalist at Politico magazine, has penned an article that I'm sure people will be talking about for a long time. Earlier this week, Ambrosino's article came out and it was entitled, Someone's Gotta Tell the Freaking Truth. Jerry Falwell's aides break their silence. The subtitle goes on to say that more than two dozen current and former Liberty University officials describe a culture of fear and self-dealing at the largest Christian college in the world. So first of all, shout out to great investigative journalism skills. Uh, incredible research here. The, uh, the journalist Ambrosino was able to find uh, emails. He was able to get confidential Interviews He did extensive fact-checking, and just the amount of data that is not easily findable is astounding in this article. And what the article does is it, is it reveals the way Jerry Falwell Jr. has wielded his power at a Christian university in an almost dictatorial fashion. He, for example, has uh, faculty and staff sign non-disclosure agreements so they can't talk openly about their experiences at Liberty even after their employment has ended. Um, At Liberty, they don't have tenure for any faculty except at the law school, and I believe that only came about as a result of accreditation requirements for the law school, Um, and Jerry Falwell, in this article, is accused of several things. First of all, Falwell is accused of making business deals that benefit his family and friends. One of the people interviewed in the article said, we're not a school, we're a real estate hedge fund. Uh, That's from a university official with inside knowledge of Liberty's finances. Falwell, they say, talks openly and explicitly about his sex life to employees, gross, and They say that employees face recriminations if they ever get on Falwell's bad side, incriminations that include silencing and even firing. Now, Falwell has a bunch of power. Liberty University is the largest Christian university in the world. It has 110,000 students. Most of them, 95,000, are online, but still 15000 on campus is a, is a big number too. Falwell grew the endowment to over $2 billion, which is an enormous amount for any school, but especially a private Christian one. And Falwell plays off his name. He's the son of Liberty's founder, Jerry Falwell Sr., who's best known as the pastor of Thomas Road Baptist Church in Lynchburg, Virginia, and the founder of the Moral Majority. Now, the Moral Majority was a major organization that mobilized the religious right starting in the late 1970s into a powerhouse voting block for conservative Republican candidates. But Falwell has come under scrutiny and criticism lately, not only for the stuff he's doing within Liberty uh, University, but also for his outspoken support for Donald Trump that's raised the ire even of theological and political conservatives. He's seen as one of Trump's court evangelicals, and in Falwell's eyes, Trump can do no wrong. He's been unrelenting in his support of the president. Falwell was also captured in some questionable photos of him at a nightclub called Wall. He denied it, saying there was no picture snapped of me at Wall nightclub or any other nightclub. I'm sure you already knew that, though. And then in response to that, the, um, organization that released the photos in the first place called World Red Eye. They capture images of Miami's night, nightlife. In response to Falwell's comment, they released several more photos confirming Falwell's presence at the nightclub. But in spite of all this, resistance to Falwell so far has been mostly futile. Why is Falwell still employed? Why does he still have so much power? It's because employees and even members of the board of trustees, who are supposed to be his bosses, they're fearful of speaking publicly because they might get pushed out of their positions. From the article, it says, it's a dictatorship. Nobody craps at the university without Jerry's approval. Another person, fear, is probably his most powerful weapon. Money, power, self-centeredness. These all describe Falwell and his leadership, but they should not describe the leader of a Christian institution. I know several Liberty University grad students or graduates of the university are not proud of their alma mater. They'll talk about liberty only in anguished tones and most often reluctantly. In addition, Falwell's reputation overshadows what I'm sure are many good aspects of the university, including dedicated faculty and staff, and talented, energetic, creative young students. And that's what's most important. The students get thrown under the bus in this scenario. At the very least, what we can say about Falwell's behavior is that it's not student-centered. He is certainly not modeling the type of character and humility most parents and students would want in a Christian university president. So I'm most disappointed for the students. Falwell won't be there forever, but he's there now, and his actions have already damaged Liberty's reputation and, by extension, that of the students as well. So the students there now have to endure the controversy and the tension that his leadership creates, and it's just not fair to them. But based on Falwell's defensiveness of his own actions, for instance, he just launched a lawsuit in response to this article alleging theft in the form of of these incriminating emails being released and, and having been made public. Falwell's focus on himself, his shady dealings that seem to enrich him, his family, and his friends, his attempts to silence dissent on campus, including the school newspaper, we didn't even get into that. You know, maybe Falwell is the perfect cheerleader for Trump. But he's far from a suitable leader for a Christian university. Trump has challengers for the Republican nomination for president. You know, every time I prep for an episode of Footnotes, I have this internal debate about whether to cover yet another story that involves Donald Trump. He dominates the news cycle like no other public figure, but I hesitate to give his racist words and comments or his erratic behavior any more attention. At the same time, he's the president. I just wonder what would we be talking about if the POTUS didn't create another debacle for himself multiple times a week? I just wonder what would be what would we be talking about? Anyway, here's yet another story involving Trump, but this time it's not about him. It's about his opponents. So we're by now familiar with the storyline of the Democratic primaries. At one point, two dozen people had officially declared their bid to become the Democratic nominee for president. It's been assumed all along that the Republican nominee would be the incumbent, President Donald Trump. But in the last few weeks, three challengers for the Republican nomination for president have come forward. They are former Republican governor of South Carolina, Mark Sanford, Former Republican governor of Massachusetts Bill Weld and former Republican representative of Illinois Joe Walsh have all declared their intentions to run against Trump in the Republican primary. According to one article, these men represent a broad ideological cross-section of modern republicanism, a reflection of some frustration with a president whose ideology is anything but fixed. Weld is a libertarian. Walsh, now a radio host in Illinois, is a product of the Tea Party. And Sanford is a fiscal conservative who launched his campaign warning of unsustainable debts that will grow because of the Republican tax cuts passed in 2017. Trump, for his part, and with his penchant for edifying language, being sarcastic, he's called his challengers the Three Stooges. These challengers face several obstacles. For one, Several Republican state conventions have canceled their primaries, and others are considering doing the same. So far, South Carolina, which is where Mark Sanford was from, Nevada, Arizona, and Kansas have canceled their primaries, which means Trump will have no competition for the nomination in those states. Another obstacle, most Republicans approve of Trump. Overall, Trump's approval rating remains low, he's never moved beyond the 40s in terms of percentage of people who approve of his job performance, and his approval rating is experiencing a dip as the possibility of an economic recession becomes more likely. But... Trump remains very popular with his base and with Republicans overall. A poll conducted for Reuters found that 77% of Republicans strongly or somewhat approve of his job performance. So Trump has a lot of support from within his own party. Yet another obstacle that the challengers face is money. In the second quarter of this year alone, Trump and the Republican National Convention raised over $100 million dollars toward his 2020 election campaign. So not only is he going to have more money than any of his challengers, he's likely to have more money than all of them combined. And lastly, he's the incumbent as the sitting president, as tough a pill as that is to swallow that he's president. He already has name recognition, national political contacts, and the office that all of his challengers are gunning for. So are these realistic challenges? Probably not. But it's still not good for Trump. According to that same article from before, it says, since the beginning of the 20th century, every president who has faced a primary challenge from within his own party has won renomination, but has lost the subsequent general election. So the odds are slim, but here's my question. Where are all the never Trumpers and why aren't they pressing for and supporting Republican primary challengers. I'm thinking particularly of white evangelicals who voted for Trump to the tune of 80% in the 2016 election and remain the most loyal segment of his base. I'm thinking of all the Christians who overlook his racist rhetoric, racist policies, misogynistic attitudes towards women, his efforts to enrich himself financially while president, his daily lies and falsifications, and His overall self-centeredness and unfitness for the job. Where are the concerted efforts to lodge a credible primary challenge? We know white evangelicals can organize politically. They've been doing it since at least the rise of the moral majority and Jerry Falwell Sr. So, are they putting their networks, their money, their organization to work to unite under a different, less repellent Republican president? If they are, I haven't seen it. I mean, I've heard of things like the American Solidarity Party. Its website says that the party is committed to addressing the needs of the human family and the earth that sustains us with prudent policies informed by Christian, lowercase d, democratic values. But how many white evangelicals know about this party? Would they get behind it or or something similar? I don't know. But I'm thinking that any serious challenge, and a serious challenge doesn't mean the person would win but a challenge that would have to be taken seriously, would come through the Republican Party itself. So apart from vocal and organized efforts to find a Republican replacement for Trump, what are we supposed to think about the political commitments of white evangelicals? It appears that they're willing to risk or tolerate or perhaps even embrace another four years of the same chaos and dehumanization that we've been seeing since 2016. If that's not the case, then show us. We'll be glad to be proven wrong. And now, folks, we come to the final segment of Footnotes. It is unfortunately entitled Tisbits, but it's where I give you my thoughts and my reflections On life. First of all, I want to commemorate the fact that uh, when this episode comes out, it'll be September 11th, the anniversary, of course, of the September 11th, 2001 terrorist attacks that claimed the lives of thousands of people across different states, mainly in New York City, as terrorists hijacked commercial airline planes and flew them into the World Trade Center Twin Towers. I remember where I was. That day. I had woken up and um, I heard on my clock radio, those were a thing at that time, that uh, a plane had hit a World Trade Center tower. And at the moment, I was thinking it was maybe like a small Cessna plane that had veered off course or had technical difficulties. But then I walked out into the hallway And I saw a group of guys in my dorm clustered around the television in the lodge. Now, this wasn't unusual, but it usually happened in the evening when people were watching Sports Center and catching up on Notre Dame Athletics. This time it was early in the morning and they had their backpacks on, looked like they were on their way to class or or just coming back. So I stopped by and I looked at the TV and I remember actually seeing the second plane crash into uh, the second tower. And then we all watched. And I remember seeing the towers fall. And I vividly recall thinking in that moment that there are people in there. And right now I'm watching people die. It was this horrible feeling uh, of dread, of fear, of sorrow. That night um, on the campus of Notre Dame, they held a, a huge mass for the entire student body. We were out on the quad. It was very poignant, we prayed. a lot of people had uh, relatives or people they knew in new york it was It was tough for us and for the whole country, so we pause to remember uh commemorate, and uh, acknowledge the fact in solidarity that that even though for many of us this is an event that happens happened almost two decades ago. there are many people, family, friends, and communities that are living daily with the loss that this tragedy brought so Um, prayers and solidarity to the victims and their families of the 9-11 terrorist attacks. That's it for this week. Visit joyandjustice.com to register for our first national conference and donate if you can. Ask your churches, your friends to help out. We'd love your contribution. Also, like my author page on Facebook dot com forward slash Jamar Tisby one. That's forward slash Jamar Tisby and the number one. I'm also on Instagram at Jamar Tisby and Twitter at Jamar Tisby. Remember, you can contact me via email too. Footnotes Pod one at gmail, Pod, and the number one at gmail.com. Thanks to our production assistant, Christina Button, our award-winning producer, Bo York. Footnotes is part of the Witness podcast suite. Check out the WitnessBcc.com for more great content. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Jamar Tisby, and this is Footnotes. This episode was brought to you in part by the Enneagram and Marriage Podcast, an outreach dedicated to bringing joy, strength, intimacy, and purpose to couples seeking growth. Be sure to visit Enneagramandmarriage.com to find your chemistry together again, or for the very first time.